I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geisert. This month, we're reading The Seeds of Learning by Tara Sumter. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. As we mentioned in our last episode, today is a very special bonus episode with our interview of Tara Sumter, author of our book this month. We are so, so excited to bring you this conversation. It was super informative. Tara is just a joy to talk to, and she is so generous with her time and her energy and her information. I just love the way she is so dedicated to spreading all this information and connecting with other SLPs, whether that's in her community or on her Instagram. And so to have her on when we read her book was just such a joy for both of us, right, Adrian? Of course. I love chatting with her. She's so knowledgeable and I'm really honored that she was able to come on and chat with us for sure. Yeah. All right. So we are going to get into it. Tara Sumter is, in case you don't know, a speech language pathologist who specializes in reading, executive functioning, and learning disabilities. She presents internationally on cognitive processing and executive functioning. She is the founder of Seeds of Learning LLC in the Cleveland, Ohio area. Her clinics serve children with learning disabilities using her cognitive processing model for academic learning. Tara is the best-selling author of our June SLP book club pick, The Seeds of Learning. As you most likely know, this book presents a comprehensive process for assessing and treating children who struggle with learning. Tara is committed to sharing her cognitive processing model and executive functioning treatment approach with other SLPs and educators. She created and runs an amazing online education community that is focused on executive functioning. We are so thrilled and grateful that Tara joined us for this fun, informative conversation. We hope that you'll enjoy listening to it, learn something new, and maybe even share it with an SLP friend who you think will love it as well. Without further ado, please enjoy our interview with Tara Sumter. So Tara, you know, we were talking and 
I realized that maybe not everybody has obsessively listened to podcasts that you've been on like we have. <laughs> so <laughs> can you just give some background as to why executive functioning? Why executive functioning? Okay, that's such a good question. Um, it's basically the foundation. It's the cognitive foundation for all of our later you know, conscious learning. So there's obviously, you know, unconscious learning that takes place. But really, when we think of like academic learning, it's the foundation for all of that. And we know, hopefully SLPs know, that speech and language development is the foundation, becomes like that initial learning that sets up all academic learning. But executive functioning has to develop before the speech and language can take place. So um, that's why. I mean, it's literally the cognitive foundation that connects us to our environment at the most basic fundamental level. It's what connects us to our environment so that we can learn from our environment. So, so much of the learning that takes place, particularly in that birth to three, birth to five early learning period is um, implicit. You know, it's, it's like almost osmosis. Like these kids just learn from being a part of their environment. And that's if they're perceiving their environment, they're attending to their environment, they're able to inhibit themselves, you know, when there are distractions so that they can attend and learn from the people around them. And so there's that implicit learning, but there's also a lot of vicarious learning that takes place throughout all of our life, meaning that we're learning from what other people do well and what other people don't do well. And this becomes a really big part of early learning, particularly for pragmatic development. So we're learning what's working and what's not working by watching other people act it out, play it out. And then we don't necessarily have to go through the same pitfalls that other people do. So this is a big part of how early learning takes place. And all of this is driven by our executive function system. Yes. That would be the short. Gosh. You know, I think when we think about executive functioning, I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, these are going to be our kids with ADD or ADHD. But as we were reading the book, Adrian and I have both worked a lot with kids with autism. And that was like a light bulb in, I forget, one of your early chapters thinking about kids with autism and those early years when they are not attending to their environment and how that just sets the stage for, you know, all the deficits we see in their skills. But do you work with a lot of kids with autism? Do you see kids with autism in your clinic? We do. Yeah, we okay. see kids with all kinds of diagnoses. As you guys, I know you know because you put up a clip on your on your face or Instagram about this, but um, I'm not a huge fan of labels. And I think the reason, now I think labels serve, can serve a really great purpose in terms of, you know, people with disabilities having a community and finding a community and then also getting services. So I don't want to discredit that at all. But from a diagnostic clinical standpoint, I feel like we have to be really careful because we look at a diagnostic label and we tend to make it like an umbrella of what, you know, lump everybody into the same category. Like, here's what, here's how they present. Here's what the profile for someone who has ADHD or somebody who's dyslexic or somebody who is autistic, right? And we think, here's this diagnosis, so here's the treatment plan. And this is why a lot of times in, in my work, you don't see me talk about other diagnostic labels because I really want people to focus on the skills and look at, okay, so this person might also have a label of autism or dyslexia or other things, but let's really look at that individual and look at their profile and see where their strengths, where their needs. Um, and that's why I find, you know, the executive function system is such a large system. It's a really massive, massive processing system in the brain. So, you know, one child 
with autism may present with difficulties in, you know, perception and attention and inhibition. And another person, um, autistic individual might present with deficits in working memory and planning. And so, but they're going to look very different and their needs are going to be very different. So um, yes, we absolutely work with all kinds of children, particularly children, but older, you know, young adults too, who come to us with all kinds of other diagnostic labels. But again, those don't really mean a whole lot for us clinically. Because uh, we're just looking at, you know, their cognitive strengths and then the needs where they need us to provide the, the extra support. Yes, I think I had a little bit of a light bulb moment when we were talking about that because I was thinking about some of these kids that I've seen who maybe we have a conversation goal or maybe they're not great at responding and listening and people just go, well, they must have autism, but it's like, maybe their attention's not there for them to attend during a conversation, which is such a complex thing to engage in, right? You're listening, you're responding, you're having to do some like theory of mind, thinking about what they're thinking. And those are all, I mean, I don't know, just thinking about attention and executive functioning in general as this basis has been, it's so obvious. I don't know why, like, (laughs) it's not like... (laughs) But really, it's crazy. I wish we had learned more about this in grad school. That's what Laura and I have both been talking about. Yeah, I don't think I heard the word executive function once when I was in graduate school. And I'm not even sure that in the context of TBI, I heard about it very much. You know, and and that's usually where like adult TBI therapy is where executive function in graduate school gets talked about more. Certainly not in the context of children, right? In childhood learning. And that's been the conversation that I've been trying to change. But so when I got out of graduate school, you know, I was doing therapy like everybody else. And right away, well, first of all, graduate school was an interesting experience, which it tends to be for many of us, right? But I had (laughs) way more questions than anyone could provide me answers with. So, you know, in my language disorders class, like that advanced language disorders class, we were supposed to be reading this book over here. And I was like kind of reading it, but I was reading all this neuroscience stuff over here because nothing was making sense to me. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't piece any of this together. So once I got out of graduate school, I really started diving into the fields of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, cognitive linguistics, a lot of occupational therapy. Um, you know, I already say neuroscience, a lot of neuroscience. And I was finding more answers there. And these are older fields, right? These are a lot older fields than ours. And so they have a a much deeper body of research and and they're looking at things a little bit differently. So for me, I've spent the last 15 years really in those worlds, trying to pull information from other fields and bodies of research into my clinical practice. And it was very early on that I stumbled into this, you know, these ideas of, of executive function. And then I was a goner. Like, right, just fell down that rabbit hole. And I haven't really looked back. But, you know, I've spent literally the last 15 years reading all this research and science and incorporating it into therapy, into a therapeutic practice. And, you know, it's been it's been wild. (laughs) I never expected to be on podcast. (laughs) You're like one of the biggest SLP celebrities we have. I mean, you're our Taylor Swift. Oh my God. I'm going to Taylor on Saturday, by the way. Yeah. That's very sweet. I appreciate that. But I have to add in right here your Instagram. I am loving your daughter's meals. I mean, 
it's unexpected that that would be like I just love seeing what they're cooking for dinner every week <laughs> I love that you're loving it too I wish they were here to hear that oh my gosh Phil. it's adorable love it our school year is so busy and if you guys have kids you probably you know you know too but mine are older and so they're in all kinds of activities and so um and then I you know I run a private practice in addition to everything else going on and we have two office locations so I'm like in between those and so you know we're gone a lot and meal time is just a stressful time I feel like for us and so now that they've wound down their schedule is a little bit they're at least winding down and I've switched up my schedule a little bit for the summer um I was like okay we can do this you know as a family and there's so much to learn from it I mean, cooking yeah. Yeah. <laughs> requires so much cognition so but they've been having so much fun with it well and I love this idea of weaving in these executive functioning skills or, or learning with any kids, you know, all kids need it. Yeah. Just looking at those, I started thinking about myself cooking in the kitchen and what all goes into that when I've got three things I'm making for dinner and I'm, it really just makes you overthink everything you're doing. Once you really start breaking it down, you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's going on in my brain right now? <laughs> but what I wanted to ask was for SLPs who maybe are new to this, new to the whole idea of executive functioning therapy, who maybe just want to add in one thing. What's the first thing you would start with, maybe that they could do with all the kids on their caseload that would help or do in assessments, something like that? So if I if I have to pick one therapy technique, um, and I may at some point, if I can ever get the second book done, I'll, I'll put out a quicker book on reflexive questioning. But reflexive questioning is hands down the most effective tool to change our therapy sessions and to really provide our students the opportunity and our clients the opportunities to self-direct. And so reflexive, and this this is not the easiest answer for me to give you because this takes a lot of practice. Um, there could be easier answers I would give you, but reflexive questioning is the one that makes the biggest difference. And essentially what you're doing is responding to the child's response and you're giving the child the opportunity to self-direct. And so I'll give you a really simple example of this. So I'll give you a speech example. So, you know, if the target sound is guh, right? And most of our kiddos fronting, they're going to go say duh, right? And I'll say, okay, ready? Say guh. The child says duh. And I'll, so what we tend to do in speech therapy is we'll go, no, 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 that's not right. Ready? Watch me. Here we go. Guh. And what I've done is I've stayed in my lane as a therapist, and I'm asking the child to meet me where I am, as opposed to meeting the child where they are. So what? how I would respond to this with reflexive questioning, I would say, when you say duh, what do you feel working in your mouth, your lips or your tongue? Duh, duh, duh. I feel my tongue working. You're right. So where do you feel your tongue? What do you feel your tongue doing? Do you feel it staying in one place? Do you feel it tapping? You know, I'm trying to get duh, duh, duh. I feel it tapping. You're right. I do too. Where do you feel it tapping? Do you feel it tapping in the front? Do you feel it tapping in the back? Duh, duh. I feel it tapping in the front. You're exactly right. Does that match mine? Ready? Watch. Gah. Oh no, you're tapping in the back. You're right again. Great job. Let's see if we can try it again. Ready? Gah. And then see what happens. What you're doing there is you're punting the error back to the child and increasing awareness around what they're doing. We can't change something that we're not aware of. Yeah. Right. We also can't repeat something. 
And we can't do something, like if we did something well, we can't repeat it if we don't know how we did it well in the first place. So there has to be awareness around our performance and our production. And the, the reflexive questioning is really what makes that happen and is super, super powerful. Um, it's funny, it's one of those things that when I'm working with and training people, you know, they'll say like, I didn't really believe you that this would make such a huge difference. And holy cow, it's a total game changer. It's a total game changer. The other thing reflexive questioning does is it creates a really positive therapy environment. One thing I talk a lot about is safety and our therapy sessions being an emotionally, obviously physically safe, but an emotionally safe place, right? When we think of communication, we're talking about us taking something from inside of ourselves and putting it out into the world to be judged. And our kiddos who are in therapy for a long time are constantly being asked to take something from inside of themselves, share it with the world, and then be judged. Nope, that's not right. Oof. Right? Imagine, right? You're making me cringe about my past therapy. <laughs> Yo, all of us. Yeah. But this idea that the simplest little thing, you know, we ask a child to say, guh. It's one sound. It seems really simple to us. But there's so much vulnerability that that child has to, you know, contend with in order to share in that capacity. So when we use reflexive questioning, I'm going to, instead of highlighting the error, I'm going to create correct responses, right? So I could have said, say, guh, child says, duh. I go, no, that's not right. Watch me again. Let's try again. So I've highlighted, no, you were wrong. As opposed to when you say, duh, what do you feel working? Your tongue. You're right. What do you feel it doing? Tapping. You're right again. Where do you feel it tapping? I feel it tapping in the front. You're right again. Does it match mine? Nope. Doesn't match yours. Oh my gosh, you're the smartest kid I've ever met. Let's see if we can try it again, right? So I've taken an error and turned it into four right answers. Wow. It's a total game changer in terms of the safety. And once the children trust you, I tell my therapists at our practice, I say, when the kids step in to our office, it should feel like a magical place where all of a sudden they're always right. Mm -hmm. Right. Because our kiddos in therapy, who've been in therapy for a long time, the world tells them on a regular basis that they're wrong whether it's socially, whether it's academically, whether it's how they're communicating, the world is giving them lots of feedback on a regular basis that they don't fit, that it's not right, they're not trying hard enough, whatever the message is. And so for us to truly be effective interventionists, we have to create such a safe space where they magically feel like they're always right with you. And reflexive questioning, hands down, is what does that. Game changer. Oh my gosh. Yes. I know you're looking for an easy button answer. There. No, <laughs> we're looking for the right answers, the helpful answers. Okay, but I do this like segues really nicely into a question I have because I have a lot of experience at the middle school and the high school level. And when I was reading the case studies in the back of your book, the last chapter, so many things were clicking for me. Like, the handwriting. I cannot tell you how many IEPs I have been in where the student is presenting, you know, maybe they already have an ADHD diagnosis and academically they're not doing great, really low written output, low motivation, unreadable handwriting. And maybe they're like not really qualifying for speech, but all of these problems are there. And the goals that are being presented are just obviously band-aid. Right. And so my question for you is like, do you see a lot of older students? I'm sure you do. 
And because it's sort of like those deficits start to become really apparent when the academic content gets harder, right? But also, how do you deal with this low motivation because things have been hard for these kids for a while and they've suffered from a lot of judgment and, like you're saying, low confidence overall? So two-part question, I guess. (laughs) Oh, okay. Those are really good questions. All right. Um, my I've worked with all ages over the course of my career. My favorite age are high school and college age students. So they are my jam. So yes, I have a lot to say about them in particular. What was your first question? I already forgot. Oh, the so as students get older, the executive function difficulties a lot of times tend to change in how they present. So it's really important, I find clinically, it's really important that when I am doing an assessment, especially with a high school or college age student, um, that I really look at early testing and I get a lot of information about early years because it will kind of, it'll highlight sometimes these root deficits. I'm going to, my second book is going to be all into this. I didn't go into this much detail in the seeds of learning because I didn't want to overwhelm people Mm -hmm. too much. Second book, all executive functioning and the therapy. So but the, you know, we ha- most of the deficits that we are going to or the difficulties that people are going to have within the executive function system are going to lie in what I refer to as these root system skills. So things like perception, attention, nonverbal and verbal working memory, inhibition, and then some researchers put cognitive flexibility in there as well. So somewhere in there is where there are weaknesses that need supporting. With older children, older kids oftentimes, and even with younger kids too, a lot of times when we think about executive dysfunction, people look at these higher level skills. They're having trouble organizing, staying organized. They're having trouble planning. They're having trouble, um, you know, with decision making, or they're having trouble, you know, prioritizing and you know, time time management and all of these things. These are very high level. What I refer to as the flowers. So if we think of this in terms of the growth of a plant, right, we have our root system, we have our stem. And then if these other aspects of the system have developed well enough, we're going to have this beautiful flower outputs, right, within the plant. A lot of times we're looking too high. But what's tricky is that, you know, when we look at a plant, what do we see? The flowers. The flowers are what we know. Right, right. Right. It's the same with the EF mm. system. Looking into the root system, it can be really challenging for um, people who don't know what they're looking at, which unfortunately isn't a lot of clinicians. We're trying to change that, right? <laughs> but really, the weaknesses are in there. So, so that's my first my first thing with teenagers. What was your second question? Sort of around like motivation and when they're coming to you. Okay, so you know. motivation I find to be an issue with a lot of our clients simply because they've been like therapized what I call it. Like they've just been in therapy for so long and it's just like, oh, whatever. And I'm a firm believer that success breeds success. And I believe that low motivation is due to lack of success. So I have to create a successful therapeutic environment Mm -hmm. for that child. Mm -hmm. So from a therapy standpoint, a lot of times what this means is that, so, you know, in the seeds of learning, I talked a lot about finding the breakdown within the system. So looking at therapy, not in terms of these isolated skills, but looking at it as this ladder, this like cognitive ladder of here's where they are and here's where 
they need to be in order to meet the goals that they have, right? And that they need right. to be successful. And what are the steps along the way that have to take place? I can tell you, you know, if I went to the gym and somebody said, you know, lift a hundred pounds, well, I'm going to become pretty frustrated and unmotivated pretty quickly right. because I can't do it. Right. I should go. Mm -hmm. I don't, but we'll get there. <laughs> so um, this idea of motivation, right? Motivation comes from having success. So when I find the breakdown, so I do my assessment, I find where that child's breakdown lies. I think of that almost as like the pain point, right? So if I'm hitting right on that breakdown at the pain point, that's going to be painful. And I don't want that to be my experience with that student right off the bat when they don't know me yet. They don't trust me. I could be any you know, person. So I usually back up and I start easier on the cognitive ladder so that I can build success and I have momentum and rapport because I've been using all that reflexive questioning with the child. So they trust me. They know that this is a safe space so that when I hit that wall, when I reach the breakdown level where I know things are going to be a lot harder, they have this momentum of success already. So I find that that's really important. You know, if they if they're unsuccessful time and time again, right? And they're leaving you just feeling depleted and you know unsuccessful, you're you're going to have a really hard time therapeutically. Mm -hmm. But you make it yeah. and you have to make it fun. My personality is so silly and goofy and you know that I don't know what it is. I'm like a high school boy whisperer. <laughs> like they tell me everything. I'm always like, oh, I don't know what you're um, But, you know, I'm willing to meet them where they are and just be real. I don't, you know, I don't believe in this hierarchy that adults are over children. I don't believe that. I meet them with the same level of respect, you know, that I would give an adult. I meet them. I very much something I talk a lot about when I'm doing trainings is how um, I, I ask for permission a lot from my clients. Right, right. So, yeah. So if I know that I'm going to make something or if I want to make something a little bit harder that day, or if I want to do one more trial, I'll ask for permission. So we did this last time. What did you think? Do you think we can make it a little bit harder today? And I want them to be able to self-advocate. This is self-direction, which is executive functioning, right? Yeah. So I want them to be able to say, today's not the day for me. I had a really hard day at school. I'm tired. Can we just keep it at the same level as last week? totally dude i'm like right or now it's bro right like yeah bro so you know i'm right i'm right there with you okay well we'll keep it the same maybe next week we can try it or next session we can make it a little bit harder so i want them to know that this is not me driving obviously i'm heavy-handedly guiding because you know i'm the one who who understands how this therapy works but but i i really make it a team effort and i want them to feel that they have so much say and so much input um into their therapy because it's their therapy right yeah yeah so the fact that you love working with high school and college age individuals tells me that you're able to make a lot of progress we were wondering is there like a magical age where you would ideally intervene before it gets to those middle school high school years where suddenly they're expected to be so much more independent and that's when things kind of start to fall apart for them academically is it better to intervene earlier, like in elementary school, if possible? Or or when you intervene at the high school level, do you just see progress 
you know, leaps and bounds of progress. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's no magical age, right? Um, I do think the earlier, the better. I mean, that's always, that's for any therapy. Um, the earlier we can get them, the better. Sometimes intervention in earlier, you know, elementary school, sometimes they have to come back again later when things change. And um, if they're having trouble developing the systems independently, sometimes they need a little bit more direct instruction, you know, later on. So there's, it really is so specific to the individual. I do think when it comes to their progress, particularly with our older students, motivation really is key. And this can be something where, you know, there always needs to be a team approach for any kind of therapy that we're doing. But, you know, when we're seeing imbalances, for example, with dopamine, which really drives motivation, you know, sometimes our kiddos are really having difficulty with that imbalance. And so we need to pull in, you know, possibly a psychiatrist, if nothing else, for a short period of time to sort of help with some of those balances to get us through some humps. But, you know, motivation does become pretty in their buy in, you know, they have to, they have to want to be part of the therapeutic process that really impacts therapy. But I feel like there's a lot we can do to try to, to reach high schoolers. You know, I think a lot of times we write off uh, therapy in high school because we see them as so much older and we think, you know, we're looking at just transitioning them to adulthood, like whatever that is. And, um, <laughs> right. Like I'm still figuring out adulting. Me too. So, you know, look at these transition services, but we know there's a really, really phenomenal book, um, by Lawrence Steinberg. It's called the age of opportunity. And he's a neuroscientist that, um, specifically studies the adolescent brain. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. I think everyone who works with kids, regardless of age, should read it. Uh, yeah. Book club. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> I'll recommend for sure. This is one of my favorite. But he talks about how the, the period of adolescence, that growth that takes place in the adolescent brain is just as profound as the growth that takes place in early development. And how a lot of times we don't realize that there is an explosion of development in the brain that takes place during adolescence. And we know this continues until five years old. So the idea that early intervention is it is just a fallacy, right? That's where we put a lot of our attention, but there's so much that can be done, especially with this real plastic, like ever-changing adolescent brain as well. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I definitely... I understand the change for sure, but I wanted, we were very curious about assessment since we both have a background as school SLPs. We loved reading the book and we were like, wow, like you would get so much great information from doing all of these different tests. But what does that look like for a school SLP that tends to be busier and, you know, we have back to back to back assessments. So would you recommend, is there like a core battery you'd recommend if we wanted to do an assessment like this? Yeah, I don't know the, what the right answer is here. I feel like it would be different for everyone. Um, I think mm -hmm. to, to be able to offer some sort of a, an assessment as comprehensive as, you know, similar to what we do, because um, our assessment process from start to finish is about 10 hours. Wow, yeah. So, and that includes about four hours of report writing time because our reports are really in-depth. So, and I know that that's not the norm. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think, 
I think there could be a really great way for school psychologists and SLPs and even the OT, if they're on board, and the classroom teacher to really get together, and you know, even intervention specialists to get together and piece in all the parts to the eval. Um, I think that would be the only way that it could be done. You know, I think SLPs, they're the perfect people, obviously, to do the language assessment, to, to do the speech component. I do, I would love for SLPs to be more heavily involved in that phonological processing piece. I love that you guys talked about that yeah. the other day <laughs> because speech, we cannot tease apart speech processing and phonological processing in the brain. They wire so incredibly intimately in the brain. And there is some really phenomenal research out there that shows, um, I think it's Gillen, G-I-L-O-N, I can't remember the year. I, I don't want to say the wrong thing of their research, but you know, it shows that if you do phonological processing intervention only, it resolves speech issues. Wow. Like that's how it's connected. And so, you know, as, as infants are, are developing, they're creating this connection between what they feel in their mouth with what they hear. And that's the feedback, right? There, there's this feedback. So when we see children struggling with this output, we know that they're getting likely this very poor, inconsistent, depending on what the speech disorder is, right? Feedback phonologically. Um, and that ends up setting them up for all kinds of later potential learning difficulties when that phonological processing system is, is poor. Yeah. But the assessment piece, I mean, I think, I think it's really important for to, to hit on as many of these components as possible. I think there's a lot that can be done dynamically. You know, executive function uh, assessment, well, all the big researchers talk about how standardized assessment is the worst way to assess executive function. And Russell Barkley in his, uh, one of his books, he goes as far as to say, he's like the godfather of executive function. He's amazing. He goes as far as to say that standardized assessment for executive function is negligent. Wow. So not only is it not effective, but it's negligent. Yeah. So, um, you know, looking at patterns, patterns across, um, across the board, I call it pop, patterns of processing. Like we're looking for the pop across settings, across different cognitive domains dynamically. Um, and that's going to give us a lot of information. And, you know, that all ties together with, those subsystems to like in the book. So yeah, I loved in the book, your description of of how you assess executive function and bringing that McCloskey skills inventory with you to all your observations. I was just picturing, I mean, I think as SLPs read your book, kids keep coming to mind where they're like, Oh, my goodness, that kid, I'm I can just see myself standing in a classroom, watching a kid try to find something in his desk and it's just like he's pulling out all these crumpled pieces of paper and the teacher told me that assignments always came back in multiple pieces you know it was just I, I was just thinking if I could just add that if I could go back to when I worked in the schools and just add having that skills inventory and and checking things off it would have been so helpful but I don't want to run out of time before we want to know more about your learning community and your courses because we were talking and we both <laughs> think we want to join your summer cohort. We're like, <laughs> as if we have the time for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm squeezing in this summer cohort. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to make it happen, but I had so many people asking for it. And I was like, okay, I think I can, <laughs> I think I can do this. <laughs> um, yeah, the online community, it's, I would say 
of all the things I've done in my career, this is what I'm the most proud of. It really, it has just been, I never could have imagined what this community would have done. So there's, there's over 500 professionals. So we have SLPs, OTs, teachers, parents, reading specialists, school psychologists. I say OTs already. I mean, like unbelievable how many different types of professionals and parents are in the network from over 20 countries. So it's pretty cool when an SLP from Portugal comes back and is like, oh my gosh, guess what I did and how it worked. So that's, that's very fun. So the cohort nature of the community itself, you know, is really awesome. People have become friends, you know, people from the network have gotten together, you know, who live close to each other and had coffee. It's just, it's so cool. Um, so there's the community aspect, but in there, there, there's so much material. Usually people are overwhelmed when they first get in, which I'm always, I'm like, no, I always feel bad, but I, it's hard to take material out. Yeah. But we have a self-study. Yeah. There's a self-study practicum that has seven modules to it. And it's hitting the seven big areas of the executive function system. The way it's organized right now is based on McCloskey's skill clusters. I am reworking it that a little bit um, for my second book that I'm working on. But, um, but right now it's organized in that fashion. And it goes through like introducing what these skills are, what they look like, and then what does assessment look like? How would we assess this? And then intervention. And it's hitting all of that. Then, so that's the self-study practicum. Then we have um, our office hours, which our office hours are really just the, the crux of the community. It's what everybody loves. We have, I mean, I don't even know how many hours. I know we're over a hundred hours saved in there. I mean, it's incredible. And we hop on live every week. So I try to vary the times so I can reach as many time zones as possible because we have people all over the world. And we hop on Zoom. Sometimes during the cohort, um, the cohort, I have like a presentation style for the office hours. But when it's not the cohort, it's very informal. So everybody hops on, they bring their questions and we problem solve. You know, last week we had couple of really great questions with some kiddos that we were talking about from some people in the community. So yeah, you know, you can always post questions in there. I'm trying to think what, else. oh, we have their two contributors, Lysandra and Agnes. Agnes is in Canada. Um, Lysandra is in North Carolina. I think they're brilliant, brilliant SLPs. And they have this area in the network called the dirt, like getting into the dirt and they um, create posts for the community and just they're phenomenal. I'm always learning from them too. I just yeah. love it. So there's just a lot, there's resources. Oh my gosh. So many resources, anything that I create, I put in there and there's no extra charge for any of this. Like whatever is in the network is there. I mean, everybody can have access to any of it. Sometimes people will throw out ideas like Tara, how do you have this? And I'm like, no, but when I have time, I'll put it together and throw it in there. Oh. There's um, probably the most valuable resource is a 47-page assessment observation workbook. Wow. And it walks through executive function skills and how you would observe that skill in your testing. So if I'm just doing the self, right, or if I'm doing my speech assessment, whatever it is, what can I be looking for for these skills from an executive functioning dynamic assessment? Wow. But yeah, the, the network is so, it's just... It's a special place that every, you know, the people in it who are really involved and invested in the community, they'll, you know, they always say like, there's nothing else like this. It's just, 
it's a special place of learners. I know we have a small Facebook group and one of our members is a member of your community and she was just raving about it. She was like, I can talk to you about it if you need more details. It's amazing. It changed my career. You know, it's the things people are saying are just unbelievable. So we're so lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) It's so overwhelming. All this has been, I mean, because I don't know how much you guys have looked into to me and what, but early in my career, I worked in the hospital setting early on for a couple of years. I was not cut out for that. Every time something started beeping in ICU, I was like, I killed them. And I would like go <laughs> versus the calm down Tara. I'm like, no, I swear I killed them. So yes, I was not cut out for, for, uh, for that kind of work. Um, but I started my private practice, um, in 2011. So it's been a while and I was out of my house. I mean, that's mm. right. You know, just working out of my house for a long time um, until I taught anatomy and physiology of the speech and hearing mechanism at the University of Cleveland State University here in Cleveland. And um, one of my students years later reached out and said, I'm going to come work for you. And I was like, in my house? <laughs> like, <laughs> going to work. She's like, I don't know, but I think we should figure it out. And she's, she's brilliant. And so I couldn't pass her up. So that's when I, we started expanding the practice. But I never... I mean, I was just, it was little old me by myself in my home office, like just figuring this stuff out and, you know, piecing things together and trying in therapy. And I was literally just sort of discovered in an IEP meeting for a student. And um, this lady, she said, you need to present to our organization. And I said, "Mm, I don't know about that. And she said, no, no, really. Uh, We're going to do this this summer. And I need for you to put together a presentation of your work because- this is unlike anything else, you know, that's happening. And I, so I did it and the, the feedback was incredible. And people said, you should write a book. And I was like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. So, yeah, it's wild. Wow. Well, I think the key here is like spreading awareness because I'm just even thinking about a multidisciplinary team it's, I feel like it's already a challenge in my brain, like getting the psych on board, getting the academic support teacher on board, you know? So I feel like the more people hear about this, it just makes so much sense that I love the idea of the community and having it be really across the world. That's amazing. Hopefully people are shouting it loud and getting more people on board and discovering you. Your Instagram is amazing. Oh, and I wanted to say thank you for not gatekeeping a lot of that information because it's a really great resource for people. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I have, um, well, the Instagram I never expected either. That started during COVID because I was, you know, locked down and I was like, I need people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do, do, right. And that's when I, that's when I started it. And again, I, I wasn't quite sure how it was going to be received because what I do is looks very different from what a lot of other people are doing in our field, but it's been awesome. Yeah. I feel really strongly about not gatekeeping information. It's funny. People in my life who are personal people in my life have said, you know, you're giving away all of your information. And it was like, it's not my information. Like it's not, I don't own this information. Right. It exists. It's there for everybody. (laughs) Nothing ever comes out of thin air, right? What we do is always on the backs of previous knowledge or previous information. So um, I'm just sort of compiling things and applying it to our field uh, in a different way, I think. 
I don't know. I, I feel really strongly. I also keep my Instagram. I, I refuse to make money off my Instagram. So I don't take any sponsorships. I don't do anything like that because I never want people to question why I'm saying what I'm saying. So I'm always very forthcoming on how I make money, right? I get a salary practice. I get income from the community. Um, I make a royalty off of my book. And then um, I get paid for speaking engagements. Mm. Not today. You're not paying me today. (laughs) When I present, I do a lot of presents. Yeah. But that's how I make money. And I refuse to have, I want everything to be very transparent. I want people to, I'm doing this because I feel that it's so incredibly important to the lives of our children. And I know what a game changer it is to really have a broader view of what we're doing and incorporating executive function into therapy. Well, Tara, it has been well documented that you hated writing your book. (laughs) (laughs) Hard information to find. (laughs) We want to say thank you because obviously it's already changing the way we think about this field. And you've also said that writing your next book has been an even worse process. You hate it even more. So, but I wanted to know with the reaction you've gotten from everybody, from all the SLPs, all the gratitude, has it been worth it? Are you still going to keep going with these or? (laughs) (laughs) Has it been worth it? Ooh, that's hard. Of course it's been worth it because it's helping children, right? Mm. For sure, for sure, for sure. It's been worth it. Um, How I feel about writing the second one right now, is it worth it? Ooh, I'm in the throes of it right now. This is by far, the second book is, is by far the hardest project I've ever undertaken ever in my life yeah um and you know those tough projects you know they make you question i mean to be totally transparent and vulnerable they make you question everything you know you get to a point where you're like oh can i really do this can i you know does it does this making sense <laughs> like is you know it really um it's just mm-hmm. such a big project i think anyone who knows my work knows that i feel super strongly about therapy not being cookie cutter That it's so important that we're looking at the child in front of us and just them and really being able to individualize as much as we can. I know that's hard in a school setting when you have a whole group, but as much as we can, you know, therapy needs to be individualized and we have to be able to problem solve, right? We have to be able to look at them and determine what is their capability to look like and and how do I um, problem solve what they need in this moment and that isn't typically how therapy is written. Right. It's like, here's a problem. Here's the cookie cutter step by step by step. And so trying to be true to what I value so much, which is meeting the child where they are and problem solving, but also in putting, teaching people how to problem solve through a book and not making it cookie cutter. It's, it's a hard, it's a hard process. Yeah, it's been yeah. it's been really hard. And my team, you know, the team that I have, the publishing team I have, you know, they they've wanted to a couple times to put some timelines on me. And I finally just said, look, <laughs> it's gonna get done when it gets Yeah. But this one's gonna be probably two fifty to three hundred pages, probably. It's... Okay, we'll we'll spread it over two months of book club then. <laughs> <laughs> because you better believe we're gonna be reading it's it. It's like you need to choose your own adventure. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing too, is that executive function is such a big topic. Yeah. And so they're yeah. different in so many cases and different age groups. And I want to do it all justice. And my team's trying to talk me off the ledge. Like maybe we birth to five, maybe we make birth to five its own little 
thing. So Tara, you don't feel like you have to whatever. So I don't know. It's been it's been a real challenge, but it'll get done. And I hope it's all I just hope is it's helpful to people. Well, we cannot wait. I mean, the first chapter we read, we were like, when's the next book? So sorry about the pressure. <laughs> I, well, and I always tell people, I can't wait too. I can't wait for it to be done. I can't wait for it because yeah. it's weights on my shoulders. You know, I wish I wish it was done too. I want it to be done. But in the meantime, people can just join your learning community. So all the questions in there, you know, yep, all the information's in there. And there's probably more in the network than I could ever get in a book, anyways. So that's the place to be. I would just say too about the seeds of learning, and this is one reason I've struggled with the second book too. You know, uh, the seeds of learning. It's short. It's sweet. It's to the point. And I wrote it that way on purpose because I know that so many of us don't have time to go home and read a book at night. We're tired. Um, I wanted it to be accessible, really accessible, because what I was sharing was a different sort of framework. And I wasn't my goal with the seeds of learning wasn't to be able to teach everybody how to do different therapy. It was I just want you to start seeing your caseload a little bit differently. Like, I just want you to start maybe thinking so that then it sends you down the path of, oh, I might need to learn more about X, Y, Z. That was really my goal with this was to sort of shake things up a little bit. But I knew if I put it in a big book, right, that wasn't going to be possible. So I wanted people to be able to like, no fluff. It was perfect. It was perfect. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Publishing companies want authors to write around 250 pages and they make it like a, a requirement, you know, and it's just who has time for that? A lot of people don't. So yeah, I did the book on my own terms, mm -hmm. kind of like I do, like I do everything and just no fluff, straight to the point. Yeah. So accessible. You could read it in a day, you know, it was wonderful. Tara, can you let everyone know where they can find you, your Instagram, where they can go to join your, your online learning community? Sure. So the community is at uh, community.tarasumter.com. Um, so community.tarasumter.com. My Instagram is um, tarasumter underscore SLP. Free education there pretty regularly, almost every day. Those are the two main places. You can go to tarasumter.com. You can find everything at tarasumter.com. But thank you so much. It's been so wonderful. I mean, I, I appreciate you guys diving into this book. It was such a surprise to see that on Instagram. I was like, oh. It was so fun. Well, yeah, you still have more episodes to listen to. I hope that you enjoy them. We just adore you. And Aww. thank you so much for coming on. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate thank you guys so much. I think we'll see you on the community. Right. I have a feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'll see us at you office will, hours. You will love it. You love the seeds of learning. You will love, you will love, love, love the network. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tara. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the slpbookclub.